from Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Colleen Coolidge. Colleen and I met last year at AppSec California in Santa Monica. We also spoke together on a security and privacy panel at the Synapse Conference last fall. Colleen is currently the head of security at Segment, a customer data infrastructure company based in San Francisco. She led security and trust at Twilio, both before and after the IPO. Colleen is originally from Southern California, where she began her security career at more traditional companies like First American Title and CoreLogic. She loves cross-country skiing, cooking with her husband, and building and improving security programs for companies at any and every stage, especially startups. Colleen, welcome to our podcast. Caroline, thanks for having me on. It is my absolute pleasure. I have been hounding you to join us on the podcast for literally months now. And then you told me the super secret way, which I'm not going to reveal to our listeners, um, to really like get in touch with you. And I have been leveraging that. And I'm just, I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here, Carolina. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of yours. So this is fun for me. That's so sweet. Colleen, you grew up in Southern California where it's hot. And recently you told me that you discovered cross-country skiing. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not that exciting of a, of a story. Some people think that, oh, the first time I snowboarded, it was epic. You know, the whole day I spent on my back and I cried. And the next day I came back <laughs> and tore it up. Uh, you know, no such epic story. But the thing about cross-country skiing that, you know, I think I've, I've shared before is I just didn't expect it to be that beautiful. And, you know, a story that I've shared because it's left such an impression on me is climbing really, really hard, like putting this hard work and going up this little ridge and sweating and being tired and going, like, why did I sign up for this? There's no chairlift here helping me. <laughs> and looking over at the landscape and seeing all of the trees blanketed in snow and seeing just a few birds here and there. And it's just absolutely quiet and peaceful. And it is the antidote for a very loud, busy and hurried life for sure. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful scene. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Okay. I guess since this is a security podcast, we should talk about <laughs> security. Sure. I mean, for our listeners, um, can you tell us a little bit about your security origin story? How did you get roped into the industry? You know, that is a really good way of putting it because that's pretty much what happened, like conscripted, hoodwinked, tricked. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I, I honestly think it's a common story because people have um, expressed to me that they've had a similar thing, that they didn't mean to go into security, but somebody was like, hey, I think you're going to be good at this and start doing the security work. Yeah, just the the short story of it was, I was working in mostly financial type companies in Southern California and doing like project management work. And one day uh, during one of my project management meetings, there was a security person at our door who let himself into our meeting. Um, and I look over and I look at the developer and the QA person and the vendor, and they kind of look at me like, who is this interloper? And the guy introduced himself and he was like, hi, my name is Ian. I'm here to do a security design review on your project. I heard you're handling sensitive data and of course I have to review it. Um, this was in 2005 
or 2004 around that time frame. And uh, that was not something that I think was very, very common was for a security person to just sort of come in unannounced and be like, I'm going to insert myself into your process. <clears throat> and as soon as security design review was mentioned, both the developer and the QA person gave me the like head chopping sign, like, no, get this guy the hell out of here. <laughs> we don't want to talk to him. <laughs> Definitely want nothing to do with this guy. And so that was my very first introduction to how people view security people. And I thought, wow, you know, is he here to hurt us or dismantle the project or what's happening? I didn't know. So I let him take a look at our project documentation, much to the chagrin of like everyone at the table. And he had lots of commentary for the vendor, the uh, QA folks, and like, how come we weren't doing this type of testing? How come we weren't using this type of encryption? How come we were doing things this way? So he marked up all the project documentation. And being just a, a simple-minded, good student, I went through and I'm like, all right, let's just address each one of these. So each one of these goes away and the guy's happy and we don't have to see him again. And so we just work through them. Um, and I remember, I remember distinctly that the developer was so bitter about having to do this stuff, um, about having to knock it out. Um, and so the way I explained it to the team was, yes, this is going to extend our project for a little bit more time. But if we were a customer and this were our data, wouldn't we feel better if, if we knew that the project team had gone through some, some sort of due diligence. Mm. And, you know, they reluctantly agreed. And one by one, we knocked out each of the items that needed remediating. And at the end of it, Ian was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe you guys fixed everything, first of all. Um, and you went from making me really, really worried about this project to making me feel good. This is a success story. Um, and flash forward to a few months later, he actually gets a director of information security job. Um, and basically tricks me into working for him. Um, and I was thinking like, look, nobody really likes security people. When you show up on the scene, they're thinking they're here to bust me. They're here to slow things down. They're here to tell me no. Um, and I work by like compromising with people by figuring out where they are and like how to get them to the next spot and not force them into a position that they don't want to be in and like show them why something is important. And he's like, that's what the industry needs. You know, we're tired of people hitting other people over the head with a hammer and telling them that they're bad, that you can't ship this. This is not good. You can't do this. Um, we need people who start with the fundamentals, like why this stuff is important. Why do we do it? And then working with these different teams to figure out like the easiest way to make it happen. And that stuck with me. And that really stuck with me. And so throughout the course of my career, as I, I guess, you know, I not intentionally, but climbed the ladder um, because, you know, mainly because I have better management skills than frankly, than I do deep technical skills. I've always remembered that that relationship building component for a security team with the rest of the organization is probably the most important thing that you can maintain because it's credit in the bank. Um, you can use it when things get tough. You can use it when there's an O-Day. Um, you can use it when there's a, a controversial uh, project that you bring up where you want to stop the presses because something is happening that shouldn't be happening. You know, you want to be able to use that credit um, and you just can't come in with a hammer swinging. That's not the way things work. Um, so that's, that's kind of my style. I love it. Um, Colleen, one of the things that you said that really stands out to me is nobody really likes security people. And I think throughout your career, what I can observe is that it's your people skills and your communication skills and your organizational skills and your management skills that have really enabled you to thrive and to progress uh, into these leadership positions. 
Can you tell our listeners what kind of struggles have you faced as a security practitioner and as a leader? And maybe what kind of advice do you have for any of our listeners who might be thinking to themselves, like, security seems a bit intimidating for a lot of different reasons. Like, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Well, that's a good point because I, I'm not sure that every person and every technologist is necessarily cut out for taking a turn into the security world because if you just look at it on a work accounting and stress level, you are making your life a bit more difficult. But on the other side of it, I guess there's um, like a karma piece of it where most of us are pretty mindful about the headlines lately. We see breaches of trust um, all the time. And it is because companies are putting more stock in getting something out the door and making money and sort of doing it less thoughtfully than they should. And maybe some companies like skew on the other end of just doing it ruthlessly. And there just aren't enough people out there who are um, teaching people how to think about something that the way the customer would want. And even if a customer isn't really well informed about their rights or what they should be demanding of each of these vendors and their, and their you know, security postures, people who are doing this job are standing up for the rights of our customers, whether we know it or not. We're making it more difficult to have that customer data stolen and used in a way that the customer wouldn't want. Um, you know, there's always gonna be um, a shortage of, of information security people out there. And it doesn't matter if you're more along the AppSec line or CloudSec or if you like compliance, um, if you do corporate infrastructure security, there, there really is a huge amount of people who aren't gonna wanna do what you do, even if they have the basic skill set for it. Um, something that you would have to ask yourself really seriously if you're thinking about taking a turn into the security industry is not, not only do I have the day-to-day -day job skills, do I have the technical skills and knowledge to do it, but when things get tough, do I have the ability to hang in there? And do I have the community around me to support me um, you know, when things are going bad, like I know that I could pick up the phone and call you and say like, Hey, this thing's going on at work and it's this political nightmare. And, you know, they're not giving me the funding that I need. Can't they see it from my position? And the great thing about the security community is we have each other. We've been through a flavor of each of these struggles before. So if you're the kind of person who can rely on others once in a while for strength, know that you can persevere and, and get your project done. And also know that you're doing these things for the right reasons. You're standing up for the customer and that's an important job. So like, that's kind of what the job really is. Um, and it's, it's also about teaching the community about things that you've learned. Maybe you've failed in something five times in a row and you just want other people to know about it so they don't have to experience that pain, share that. Um, that's the great thing about our community is that we, we get talks, we get code, um, we have like secret support back channel information. All of that stuff is available to a security professional that's not necessarily available to all technologists. Um, so yes, there is a source of strength, but um, you would be kidding yourself if you think that your life would somehow be easier if you take a turn and go work into security. Hmm. I, did, I didn't sell it very well, did I? <laughs> no, I mean, I love it. I think, I think it's nuanced, right? And I think if we're honest, it is complex. What I think is particularly interesting about what you just shared with us is that I'm learning that you really see yourself as an advocate for your customers. Um, you know, there's this, this concept that came up on our security and privacy panel at, at Synapse last fall about sort of the security golden rule. 
you know, wouldn't you want the companies that handle your data to protect it? And if we're in that position of being a data steward, then how can we do the things that we ought to do um, in order to protect and secure our customer data. Um, and it sounds to me like that's really one of the things that drives you and keeps you going in this role. It absolutely does because, um, you know, we probably have each other's data because of the companies that we work for. Um, but imagine all of the vendors that have your data. If you knew somebody in the security department at, at Chase Bank, or you know whoever holds your mortgage, whoever holds, you know your your high finance, you know all of your stocks and bonds and things like that. I mean, you would want that security department to be well supported within its company, to be firing on all cylinders, to have information available so that they could make their program better, so they could make things safer. Um, if if we each of us as part of this community raise each other up and make each other better, then security overall is going to improve. I do think one of the um, key failures of, of our industry overall is that it's not transparent enough. Um, and I know that there, there's legality, I'm not a lawyer, um, but you know, exposing some of that weakness and working with others on a one-on-one -on -one level, like we've reached out to different companies where we have peers, um, and I won't name them, but um, where we talk about key issues that we might be struggling with. Um, or how we managed to solve something and that we're willing to share some of that, that secret sauce with them and they with us. I do think there needs to be a lot more of that um, because you can still compete and you can still make money, but you can still also make people better. I just don't see why those things um, appear to be mutually exclusive. And I do see that the security industry is kind of leading that charge um, because all of us see the problems that are happening and things aren't getting necessarily better. They're getting worse. The only thing that's that's being raised, I, I think, is awareness, but um, but we're, these are intractable problems. We're not really going to make the kind of progress that we want to make if we stay siloed. I do think the transparency thing is a really interesting point. I think that what I've seen is that when people have developed personal trust relationships, the type of trust relationship where you have the person's name and cell phone in your phone and you can text them and you kind of know that they're going to get back to you pretty quickly. You know, it seems to me like those are the types of relationships that get leveraged when shit hits the fan. Yes. Um, and I think that I've seen savvy security leaders establish those trust relationships with each other. Um, and there are some, you know, formal, you know, mechanisms to do that, you know, the ISACs, for example. Um, but it's interesting. I wonder, you know, if you have thoughts on should people be going out and trying to develop these one-on-one -on -one trust relationships? Should they be attending community events? Should they be attending dinners, meetups? How, how does somebody get to that point where they know someone well enough that they feel like they can trust them, they can share, you know, some potentially sensitive information with them and that they kind of know, you know what, I trust this person to not put me in a bad situation. I trust this person to actually help me out. And that's why I'm reaching out to them. How, how do you go about, how do you go about doing that? 
That's a great question. Because um, you can't just trust anyone. You yourself are in a position of trust in your own company, which means you shouldn't be talking, you shouldn't be tweeting about every little thing that you have going wrong, of course. Um, but at the same time, how do you build your community, your dream team, right? That's really what they are. Yep. And you for them, how do you build that community? Um, yeah, I would say for people who are starting off in security leadership positions or, um, or just really who haven't tested the waters, a great way to do that is go to the dinners that you're invited to, go to the conferences, um, go to the meetups, speak at the meetups, listen to the meetups, talk to their speakers, talk to the attendees, um, and what will and keep track of them, you know, and let them know like, I is it okay if I add you on LinkedIn? I might have a couple questions. Um, invariably, what happens when you keep up that behavior is maybe one out of 25, whoever people that you talk to, there'll be someone that you build a personal connection with. So not only do you have job skills and duties in common, but there's something about this, pers this person's personality that makes you trust them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if you're always like very paranoid about it, you can start off with like a, a very bland problem that everyone has. It's like, ah, oh, vulnerability management, it's really tough at my organization. Maybe you could tell me a couple things that you've done uh, to, to move the needle and make things get fixed faster. Like what's the key thing? And really starting those conversations with something relatively light um, gives you an opportunity to understand, like, first of all, is this person even good at solving that problem? And second of all, like, I, can I trust this person? And it took me probably about four years or so in San Francisco to build that dream team here. And while I have folks uh, in Southern California that were really helpful in that situation down there, um, it's a different it's it's a different scene up here. Um, you know, almost everyone I know, their um, infrastructure is in AWS or GCP. Developers are following the Agile method. Like, whereas, you know, places I came from in Southern California, it was a local data center that maybe you were sitting on and everything was waterfall. Oh my gosh, you know, it'd be like a one or two year project. Um, so you kind of have to have people who are more specific to your situation, more recent in your um I guess, in your knowledge, um, the only way to do that is really get out there. Um, because if you're hoping to make these connections just through social media, that other person can't stand in front of you and evaluate you and, and think like, is this a person that I could tell something slightly sensitive to? Um, like, you you know, who trusts bots on Twitter? Mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. Colleen, there's another thing I want to ask you about, which is, you mentioned some of the differences in terms of how the businesses that you've worked for in Northern California versus Southern California in your personal experience, in the case of your personal experience, some of the differences, one could say, you know, more modern software development methodologies, certainly different ideas and practices when it comes to uh, tech infrastructure. When we were preparing for this podcast, you shared with me something else with regards to how companies in these different geographies view and treat tech workers. And I'm curious if you can elaborate a little more on the stuff in Southern California, like is tech seen as an enabler? Is tech seen as a cost center? Um, and, you know, now that you've got sort of the experience from these two different worlds, um, can you tell me a little bit more about what that contrast has been like for you? Yeah, um, I would say it's night and day, and it's not just because of the infrastructure and development method uh, differences. It 
I think it boils down to um, the places I worked in Southern California. The impression that I got was that while technology is an enabler, um, it is also a huge cost center and it's not necessarily central to the company and its success. So for example, um, I've worked at places before that um, saw, they would call all of the work that you and I do, that every developer, a QA, database person, um, IT help desk, all, like all of that collectively was an IT person. Hmm. And IT people were a huge expense on the company because we were not necessarily like selling product directly to customers. We weren't responsible for sales. Um, and when a company, a more established company that doesn't necessarily innovate every quarter and come up with something amazing, um, when they think about how do I make more money for the next quarter, they don't necessarily think like I'm going to make the next most awesome thing. They think, how do I cut people? How do I cut costs? And when you have a quote unquote giant IT organization, which again is all of us in the same boat, um, they start looking at different areas of that boat to outsource. Um, and so business process outsourcing was huge in Southern California for, um, for the time that I built my career there. And having to explain to executives on a regular basis why your department doesn't need to have cutbacks yet again, mm. why you know, parts of your department don't need to be outsourced to something that'll be way cheaper in, in the long run, something that's either offshore or you know, with one of the big business process outsourcing. Um, they don't necessarily want to hear that. They want you to fall in line. They want you to cut jobs. They want you to, like, what is it, stack rank people um, and figure out what you can ruthlessly outsource. Now, the problem that I have with that is that you're outsourcing a lot of the people who could make your business more competitive. You know, instead of cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting, um, why don't you think about how you can outstrip your competitors? What's the thing that you could ship or what's a better way that you could treat your customers that separates you from everyone else? And that requires people who've been working at the company, people who have ideas about what works and what doesn't work, people who are invested. And when you outsource large portions of your company, you don't have a workforce that's very invested in making your company succeed. They're punching the clock. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's a wasted opportunity. And one of my pet peeves in life is wasted opportunities. When I see that, it's such a shame because then the people who remain and don't get outsourced, they're constantly worried about saving their own ass, saving their job when they should be, you know, and I think one thing Northern California does really well is your day-to-day -day concerns. You know, there may be some over spoiling when it comes to, you know, feeding you lunch and making sure that you've got these perks and benefits, but the purpose of it is so that you can put aside your day-to-day -day basic survival type of concerns and concentrate on now, when I don't have to worry about any of those things, how can I make the company better? What can I do today to make us 10% better? And that's the mode that they want to get us in. And that's the reason why I decided to move and look for a job up here was because I was really tired of that, um, what I felt was a very antiquated and very narrow-minded uh, viewpoint on how to view your workforce. Because your people, your human resources are your biggest strength. Um, and I wanted to be in a place that valued its human resources um, and in specific for us, like the technology workers and security people. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about now that you're at Segment, 
you've been there for some time, you've built up a team, you've also built up a community in sort of your current local geography. What are some of the things that you appreciate about how your company treats the people on the team um, that you think helps them to be more effective and more innovative? Yeah. Um, so let me first say that, um, yep, I, I definitely love working at Segment. They are amazing. Um, but for every security professional out there who doesn't feel that way about their current company, you should look for another job. Mm. There's a shortage of excellent security people out there of every, every, every kind. And you shouldn't have to worry about who's getting laid off on your team, who's not getting funding, what things aren't going to get done, how you're not going to be able to do your job. Because what you do is so important, it has to be built in the very fabric of the company. And the company that I'm, I'm currently at, Segment, um, that is exactly what's happening. And so every security person hears that pitch from a potential company like, yeah, come here. It's so important to the executives. It's part of our story. And we're like, mm. yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as soon as I get there, it'll be a different story. What struck me, and I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm you know, eventually be on my second year pretty soon. What struck me most was the willingness and receptivity of just the general population of people, everyone from people at the front desk to the developers, um, to people who handle the infrastructure side, um, HR even, how everybody was trying to figure out what parts of their job intersected with security, what their security responsibilities were. So when I showed up, I don't know who prepped them, but it was people who probably came before me. Um, I would even say executive management who baked in that story that we can't be successful without great security. We, we just can't do it. Um, so having different people from around the company come up to me and say, we've been waiting for you, um, which, you know, that can be a little bit weird, but you know what? It was cool. <laughs> so, uh, we've been waiting for you. Um, <laughs> Our and, savior. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, um, high hmm. expectations, no yeah, pressure falling. Or, you know, my next new favorite cult that I'm joining. I don't know. <laughs> um, but they really had this wonderful openness to figure out what they needed to do in their job to make the company's security overall better. So they understood that each one of them had a role. Um, and so that's like the normal rank and file. And then when talking to the executives, um, my boss in particular, Tito, he's, he's a really cool guy. He made it so that security compliance and privacy were considered bedrock items within the company. Mm -hmm. And that means that you cannot build without having these things in place. You can't move forward because there's just not any, any like it's all on shaky ground. Um, and so, you know, we get the, the headcount and the funding that we need. Um, we have the latitude to implement the types of programs in the way that we want to. Um, and because of that, we've been able to build um, like a security team and program faster than I've ever been able to build it anywhere else before. Um, it really has its own momentum and a life of its own, you know, and I'm, I feel like I'm just a small part of it. It's because the, the ground was fertile before I even came here. And then the executives really actually put their money where their mouths are. And it's not to say that um, there aren't conflicts or, you know, I have to bring things to their attention or, you know, there's, you know, contention. But that attitude is genuine, and I, I see that in their actions. I see that in the funding. I see it in the way that other teams interact with our team. Um, and it's been it's been a really great ride. That is fantastic, Colleen. I am so thrilled that you've been able to find a position where 
people genuinely prioritize security and recognize the value. You know, I do a lot of wondering, frankly, about these types of really fundamental company values. You know, is that something that comes from sort of the rank and file? Is that something that comes from the executives? And it sounds like Segment sort of recognizes that it's really kind of key to their success. Like you said, sort of the bedrock. So I'm, I'm so happy to hear that for you. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those situations where you kind of have to pinch yourself every once in a while, like, am I just imagining this? Um, but it, it, it happens to be a really good selling point for people who are interviewing here because, you know, we've all been in that position before where you have to fight every day. In addition to trying to get your job done, there's also that fight and it wears you down. You know, you just want to make things better and, uh, and think about who you could be and the things that you could do if you didn't have to worry about that. Um, you'd be a lot happier and you would sleep better throughout the night, I would tell you that. Yeah, good stuff. It's certainly, it's certainly a lot more comfortable to feel like you've got the company on your side when you're trying to do your job. Colleen, thanks again so much for joining us today. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I always enjoy our conversations. Um, and I feel really inspired. And I really want to start planning a cross-country skiing trip. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to come stay at your ranch and cross-country yes. skiing all over there. Oh, please do. Please do. Colleen, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with our Humans of InfoSec community. Um, and I can't wait till the next time I get to see you in person. Caroline, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.